Okay, so if we have any kids from the age of two to the age of six, you can follow Miss Connie downstairs if you really want to. <laughs> Sorry, I heard that. Oh man, Keith, crew, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. That was wonderful. So for the last few weeks, Kenny's been talking to us about the temple. Oh, wait a minute, my hair's gonna get in the way, won't it? Okay, now then. Kenny's been talking to us about the temple and um, how it's a touchable, seeable, smellable human thing that points us to the one who actually inhabits the temple, which is Jehovah, who made the plans for the temple, you remember? God did, and he told Moses what to do, didn't he? Did he tell Moses what to build it out of? Yeah. In fact, he kind of directed the whole entire idea of having a temple to the whole entire idea of the temple being there and being able to see and touch and smell. It's kind of a God thing. There's an old-fashioned word for that. It's called sovereign. We don't use that word much anymore, do we? Sovereign. I looked it up, and sovereign means supreme in power. I mean, nothing else, no other person, no other thing is stronger than a sovereign. It also means possessing supreme dominion. So all property, all things belong to the sovereign. Here's the one that got me. Effectual. Does that sound like it belongs with sovereign? But it does. So I looked up effectual and I'm like, okay, that doesn't make any sense to me personally. And I looked it up and it, effectual means producing a cause, a consequence, or a result. In other words, effectual means something that does what it is intended and meant to do. It also means completely operative, meaning it always works. Here's another kicker word, efficient. <laughs> you ever thought of efficient as being effectual? I mean, these days, efficient means the fastest, cheapest way to get something done, right? Right. But in God's economy, efficient means the best way to get something done. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And no, I'm not going to read the whole entire thing, but I am going to pull some pieces and parts out of it, okay? Otherwise, there wouldn't be a sermon. Chapter 5, 2 Kings, 2 Kings, chapter 5. Did I say first? No. Good, thank you. 
Mike just wasn't paying attention. Okay, we get that. That happens a lot. <laughs> okay. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, king of Syria, Syrians, Israel's enemies, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that and read that and read that, about the 20th time I read this passage through, I'm like, it kind of clicked. What do you mean? He was blessed by the Lord to win battles for Syria, Israel's enemies. How does that happen, right? But then I began to think, you know what? All of us in this room have been Naaman at some point or another. We've been blessed with gifts, with talents, with abilities before we ever came to the Lord. I mean, God gives these things. And why? Because he is sovereign. Hey, awesome. I'm a good teacher. <laughs> so I'm going to give you an example, real life, honest to goodness example. There was a two-year-old living in my house once. I called him my son because he was, okay? And I know that a lot of you younger people are not really going to understand this, but when computers first came out for personal use, okay, the internet did not exist. What? I know. It wasn't there. It didn't happen. The only way you can pull anything out of your computer was to put something in it. And you know what you put in it? Like a six to eight inch size. It was called a floppy disk. Yeah. And you know how you got that thing to actually enter into your computer and started working? Yeah, you had to actually type in the correct sequence of digits, and it was about 312 letters long, okay? And if you got to the third to the last letter and you typed in a lowercase a instead of a capital A, it was going to kick you out and you have to start all over again at the beginning, right? That was a real thing, honest. It really was. No such thing as Twitter, no text message, no satellite feed, nothing. That's the way it was. My two-year-old could do that by himself. Tell me how? I don't know. We made him wait till he was three. Three? How many three-year-olds do we know? They all went downstairs, right? But we made him wait till he was three before he was allowed to pull up his favorite game without one of us standing right there with him. No adult supervision. We made him wait till he was three to do that, okay? That's, you know, that's what you call a gift. It's a talent. It's an ability. And I'm going to tell you, at the age of two and three, salvation was not on his radar. It didn't exist for him. He had no clue at that point. Okay? That's exactly how Naaman was. He was blessed by the Lord to win battles. He happened to live in Syria. What am I stepping on? Okay. Just making sure I wasn't stepping on Keith's guitar. That would be bad. He could do these things. The point is, a sovereign God can bless anybody he wants to, whenever he wants to, with whatever he chooses to bless them with, 
wherever they are. Whoa. Concatenations of events. Sorry, guys, I've been waiting to say that word for so long. You have no idea. Concatenations of events working together to show us himself. And when you read this first part of 2 Kings chapter 5 down to about verse 19, this whole entire thing is all about the sovereignty of God himself. What he can do, what he does do. And when you have these abilities, and those of us, I know most of us here are already Jesus followers, but maybe some of us here are not. Or maybe some of us here are very young, what we call young in the Lord. You haven't quite gotten into the sink of actually thinking of God as almighty and sovereign in your life. Okay? But your talents and your abilities, when you come to the Lord, it is a natural, normal thing to give them over to the Lord, right? For him to use. And you find that you give them over to him to use, he gives you more of them. He might give you something different. He might enhance what you already have, like Keith and Amber and Justin and Rachel up here. They had those gifts, I'm sure, from the time they were very tiny. When you came to the Lord, all of a sudden they took on this new dimension of fullness and completeness and joy. He who has will be given more, but he who has nothing will lose what he thinks he has. Jesus himself, Matthew, chapter 13, verse 12. And then he says it again, okay? However many chapters later, chapter 25 comes up, 25, 29. For to everyone who has, more will be given, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. You ever think of the Lord as taking away some of your gifts? You came to the Lord and all of a sudden you didn't have what you used to have before? You wonder why that is? Because that's not what God wanted you to have. He will enhance the gifts that he gives you that glorify him. But he also has the sovereign will and ability to take away from you what that which he knows will not glorify him in your life. When our idols start falling off of us, it's a painful process. We love those idols. Chocolate. Ever get your brain in a wad over that? Who does God think he is anyway? Where does he get off telling me what gifts and talents I'm going to have. You know, before we come to Jesus, these are very common, normal thoughts, okay? This is where we step back when we come to the Lord and we realize, wait a minute, we're starting to think about God like he's just any other person on the planet, okay? Like he's just any other boss we've ever had. When we start putting him in that category of why does where, where does God get off thinking that? Why, why can't he do things the way I want him to do? He's kind of like, you know, God, who died and made him God. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he alone is rightfully and correctly sovereign, and if you belong to him, whether you like it or not, 
you have placed yourself in a position for him to be sovereign over you. We read a little bit further down. The Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife, Naaman's wife. Slave girl. She's a slave girl, okay? She worked for Naaman's wife. They call her a girl, probably because she was close to marriageable age, but she'd never been married. So she was probably, give or take, in the neighborhood, 14 to 16 years old. Give or take. She was from Israel. That meant she was a Jewish girl. She was a Jewish girl living in a Syrian household. New Testament terms, we would call her a Jesus follower, okay, a Christian. She came from Israel, therefore she belonged to Jehovah. Because let's keep in mind that back in those days when these events happened, I'm not saying when the story was written because it's not a fictional story, okay? I mean, it's not, a not, it's not fictional. This is a real thing. Real events happened here, okay? In those days, where you lived, who your family was, the land that you live in determined who your God was, had absolutely nothing to do with having any kind of a relationship with an actual God. That's the way the world worked back then. If you were Syrian, you happened to worship, in this case, Ramon, because the God of Thunder was who the king of Syria worshipped at the time. So that's who their God was, was the, was the God of Thunder, Ramon. Okay? If you lived in Israel, and were an Israelite, then Jehovah was your God. We hear about Baal most often, but since he's not involved in here, that's all the mention he gets. So this Jesus follower had been forcibly taken away from where she belonged. She served someone who did not follow her God. She would not have been given leave to worship him, to attend synagogue, to, um, to keep the prayer times or the customs of her people, unless her mistress said that she could. And her mistress was not a believer in Jehovah because she was a Syrian, okay? She followed the god Ramon because that's where her king worshipped. And in God's sovereign will, the most efficient and bestest way of going, of, of, to go about getting the salvation of Naaman, okay, was to force this girl into a place she didn't want to be. How many of us have ever found ourselves in that predicament? Not an ideal situation. Many of us don't live in ideal situations. We have a, have a cranky husband, spouse, have a cranky boss who doesn't like us. We have coworkers that we don't like, right? And then 
she's sitting there, I don't know, brushing Mrs. Neaman's hair, or whatever it is that, that slave girls did at the time. And God placed it in her heart to tell Naaman's wife about this miracle worker who lived in Israel. Now, why would Naaman need a miracle worker? He had this little thing called leprosy. Leprosy back then was a skin disease that was not curable. And we know that he needed a miracle worker, and it probably was the actual disease of leprosy because he was not cured. He had this disease. It was a progressive disease. It didn't stop. He'd been to the doctors. He'd been to the sacrifices at the temple. He'd been to the witch doctor or whoever else that they went to in those days. He'd done everything that he could think of to do. Nothing worked, and that's why he's heading for a miracle worker. How many of us grasp at straws? I need a miracle God. I've got to have a miracle God. And we do that. Most people would look at Naaman and say, uh, he's not savable. Who would want to save him? He does nothing but beat us up. He helps Syria beat up Israel, and he wins. 2 Peter 3 and 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But he's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, even people we don't like, even people who aren't really savable, even people like Naaman or me. See, we have this idea that when life is going good, we have this inner sense that we must be pleasing God, and that he loves us, right? But when life is a struggle, and we find ourselves in places we don't want to be, we don't like to be in, then somehow or another we are doing it wrong, and God doesn't love us. And yet God chose this way as the most efficient and effectual way to save a general named Naaman. And we have to think about it. Naaman was apparently a pretty likable guy. I mean, his boss liked him, right? He was still general. His wife's slave girl liked him. Liked him enough to actually mention this miracle worker in Israel. Okay? His wife liked him. Think of that. She, sorry, she liked him enough to actually pass on this little nugget of information. If she hadn't liked him, she would have been happy for him to die in his skin disease because it would kill him at some point. His boss liked him, even gave him leave to go pursue this miracle cure. All right? His servants liked him. Because as we read a little bit later on, Naaman got a little bit ticked, and he was ready to leave, and his servant says, no, 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 no. We like you enough. Just do it. It's okay. I don't know about you guys, but approaching my boss when she's angry is not always a good idea, right? Yeah. So Naaman was also very obviously a wealthy man. So when you go to a miracle man, 
you take a present with you, right? You know what he took with him? 700 pounds of silver, give or take a few ounces. 150 pounds of gold. I'm wearing a few ounces of gold on my finger. Translate that into 150 pounds of gold. And 10 changes of clothing, keeping in mind that there were no Chinese sweatshops back then that every single piece of clothing was made from the skin out from the yarn of the animal it was sheared from. So they took the yarn, they, first they had to shear the animal, then they had to take all that fur, hide or whatever and spin it into actual thread and then they had to weave it all together into cloth. And once they got done with that, then they could start cutting it and shaping it and dyeing it and making it good to wear. So it was not an easy process. 10 changes of clothing would have been quite considerable. Not only that, he took a personal letter from his boss to the king of Israel. And look at that reaction. And when it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes, keeping in mind what we just talked about on, with clothes, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? He kind of freaked out a little bit, didn't he? You know what? It was a real thing. This great opportunity to mend a feud between the two countries, and the king of Syria is using it as a way to pick a fight. And the king of Israel is accepting it as a disaster already done. So how many times in our lives do we, something come up against us and we freak out and we wonder, how could this possibly happen to moi? I'm so good. Why is this out of my control? Why is this happening? It shouldn't be happening to me. Who's God in your life? Matthew 16, 21, we're talking here about Jesus. Jesus' life was not always a rose garden. We realize that. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. These are his own people and be killed and be raised on the third day. So Jesus was born to die, and not only that, his death was horrible. It was bloody, humiliating. You know, whenever we see the cross up there, we always see them with a strategically placed cloth across his body. That didn't happen back in the day. They were totally and completely exposed to everybody. They weren't hidden behind a tree. They weren't hiding down in a ditch. Right out front, humiliating. It was ugly. He went to the cross and he died there. And that came off looking like a ginormous loss, just like our lives do to us sometimes. It's a total loss, completely. But then, Jesus 
resurrected from the dead. He came back to life like he'd never been dead before. And he still lives. So that ginormous loss was actually and truly a great win. No, John 6, 40 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Continuing on, let's go down a little bit further. Told you I wasn't going to do the whole entire thing. Naaman gets to Elijah's house, or Elisha's house. He comes to the house. He's got his camels. He's got his donkeys. He's got his servants. He's got some people from the Israeli court. He's got the neighbors coming through town wanting to know what all the fuss and commotion is about. All is pomp. All is circumstance. He arrives at Elisha's door. He sends a servant to knock on the door. And the miracle man won't even come out of the house. You know what he does? He says, Jeeves, you go out there and you tell him. So he does. He goes out there and he says, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and then you'll be clean. And he shuts the door and he goes back inside. And there is Naaman. All his pomp, all his circumstances, all these people witnessing the humiliation of basically being told, get out of here. It's like Elisha was treating him like he was some kind of leper. Because <laughs> he was. Okay? Just like Elisha, according to God's word, could not come out and speak personally with Naaman, leprosy in our souls translates as sin. Sin cannot come into God's presence. The leper in those days had to walk around yelling and blowing a horn and saying, get away from me, I'm a leper. That was the Israeli way of making sure that the dirty people didn't infect the clean people. And sin is still like that. And Naaman was completely humiliated. I mean, all of us, we tend to believe that we are worthy of some kind of respect, right? This was not respectful in any way or sense of the word. We tend to think that, especially in our younger days, we tend to think that we're kind of like all that and then some. Yet, well, Naaman was all that and then some. And he just had the door shut in his face by a Jeeves. And I'm not making fun of you if you're not saved and you've had this mindset. Okay, this is a very human way to react. That we are worth, we are worth some kind of respect, especially from God, we think. See, it's the sovereign 
rule of God that leads us to understand that we are all infected with sin. We've all got it. God's rule is still that sin cannot come into his presence. So what was Naaman's reaction to this? He was ready to go home, grab his troops, come back, and bomb the heck out of, Syria, out of Israel, the king, and especially Elisha, right? I don't know if it's Elisha or Elisha, so you'll hear me say it either way sometimes. That was his first knee-jerk reaction, just like all of us. Our first knee-jerk reaction to being humiliated is anger. That's a normal human emotion. I'm not saying it's a correct human emotion, but it is normal. Naaman's servants, on the other hand, were a little more pragmatic, a little more practical, right? Master, master. If he had asked you to do something really, really, really hard, wouldn't you have gone out and done it? Oh, why not just go wash in the Jordan River? It's not that hard to do. It's easy. And who knows? Maybe the miracle man can make a miracle. And Naaman had a pretty, oh, I don't know, standard, real answer for that. Why the Jordan River? Why the Jordan? river of all places. I know a whole lot of other rivers. Okay? Not, why does it have to be this bloody, or not bloody, this muddy, messy river over here? Why can't it be one of my clean rivers in Syria that I already know about? Why can't it be one of these other beautiful rivers that I've come across in my travels? Why can't it be something else besides just this nasty, muddy, roiling, River, think of the grable when the snow's coming down, how gross it can be. Why does it have to be that? But isn't that just like us? Why Jesus? Why does it have to be Jesus? Why does it have to be the cross? Why can't it be Buddhism or Shintoism or humanism? Why can't it be Islam? Why can't it be witchcraft or crystals? Crystals are pretty, right? Why can't it be something like that that I'm familiar with, that I know about? Well, one of the reasons is why, one of the reasons why is because they're not God. The God who created all things, and yes, I am a creationist, the God who created all things, the God who is called holy, holy, holy. He's not just called holy once. He's called holy three times. Holy, holy, holy declares to us who are created that there is only one way into his presence. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to my Father except they go through me. I apologize, but that one really gets me every time. And no, I don't apologize. It should get me every time. 
see, it does matter where you wash. It does matter who your God is and who you believe in. You cannot come to salvation trying to wash yourself clean in your own river of rules. You cannot come to salvation by following church doctrine. You cannot come to salvation by being good, by looking at crystals, by trying to read the stars. Those things don't make you clean. God has declared there's only one way to be clean, and you can't come into his presence unless you are clean. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God made it easy, 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 okay? One God, one way to him, one spirit to help us stay the course. Okay, so Naaman, let's get back to Naaman here, okay? He didn't get to the position he was in without being teachable. He had to learn from somewhere, from someone at some time. So he had the ability to be taught, something we kind of sort of forget upon occasion. So he listened to his servants, and he went to the Jordan River, and he dipped himself in it. And I'm not talking just, you know, the arm dipping kind of a thing that Kenny showed us the other week. I'm talking about he took his whole body and threw it in the river, and he came out, and he went back in, and he came out and he went back in. He did that seven times, just like the miracle man said, and you know what happened? He came out the seventh time. He was healed. He was completely clean. His skin was brand new all over his body, like he'd been born again. Imagine that. So why do we always think that God's salvation is a ginormous struggle? God's salvation is really... It's really easy, okay? You realize you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus is God's son, and he's already paid. He's already paid for your sins. You say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You know how you say that? Jesus is Lord. Exactly, just like that. We sang it all morning long. Jesus is Lord. God is Lord. God is in heaven. He is our Lord. And then you start following Jesus. See, Jesus already did the part that none of us could do. He paid the perfect sacrifice. He did it one time. One time was all it took for Jesus. Okay? And it covers our sin for all time. As in, you know, like ever. Because we all know that this life is temporary. This isn't the end of our life. Once we leave this life, we just continue on into a life that doesn't live here on earth. And Naaman did what we all like to do whenever we've received this miracle cure. 
whenever we've received this miracle of salvation, whenever we've repented and come back to the Lord, always, we all want to do it. We want to pay for it. God, you're worth it. I, I give you all of me. Well, we don't have anything that he didn't give us already. So when we give it all to him, we're not really giving him anything new. See, there's no payment that's big enough for the cure from sin. And Jesus, that's why Jesus says there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Because, you know why? Because there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Very simple. That's why he said it. Because there isn't any other way to God except through Jesus. Whenever you see the word because, and you're reading through your Bible and it says because, stop a minute and say, well, because. Sometimes it helps smooth, things, smooth some of those bumps over. Naaman, Naaman, became a Jesus follower that day. And he tried to pay the miracle man for this wonderful, beautiful cure. And Elisha wouldn't take it. He just wouldn't take it. There's nothing that Naaman could give him that he didn't already have in the Lord. Maybe the money and the clothes, but, you know, other than that, there was nothing that Naaman could give Elisha that he didn't already have in the Lord. So then Naaman does a really weird thing. He says, well, if, if I can't pay you, can I at least take a truckload of dirt off of your property? Now, I don't know about you. That sounded a little weird when I first kind of thought about it like that. What does it matter? Because keep in mind that in those days, the land that you live on determined the, your, your God, right? The land that you live on, lived on determined your God. So if you lived in Syrian land, the Syrian God was your God, was the one you worshipped. And if you lived in Israel, the Israeli God is the one that you worshipped. The land was important in those days. We kind of have this same sort of mindset that the only way to serve God really is in the denomination that we've always grown up in, that we're always comfortable in that, no, I'm not going to go there, sorry, <laughs> he took the dirt, what he was doing is that he, in his mind, was taking the God of Israel with him back to Syria so that he would have a piece of God to worship on when he was back in Syria. Now, he took, a, he took a truckload of dirt. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll, we'll wear a cross. I wore this today on purpose with a black shirt, make it easier for you to see. We'll wear a cross. Sometimes we wear crosses on our earrings. Sometimes we wear crosses on our rings. Sometimes we wear sayings on our t-shirts. Whatever it takes to help us remember, 
which God it is we're actually serving, who we actually belong to. It's a good reminder, and that's what Naaman was doing. He was taking a piece of God along with him in order to know who's, who he worshipped. And the thing I like, I know a lot of people wear crucifixes. That's the one where Jesus is still on, is, is, is on the cross. And the reason they wear those is so that they can remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And that's a very important thing. But the reason that I prefer the empty cross, because he's not there anymore. Amen. I serve the God of an empty cross. The one who died the one who came alive again, and the one who lives forever. Revelations 1, Revelation 1, verse 18. Do not be afraid. This is Jesus himself talking. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. <coughs> and then Naaman did a kind of a strange thing, if you think about it. He took his entourage a little ways down the road, and he parked, just stayed there. You ever wonder why he did that? Why didn't he just grab all his stuff and leave? I mean, he had a job to get back to, right? He had things that needed to get done. Why didn't he just pick up and go? Well, for one thing, it probably took him a while to get a truckload of dirt packed up on his mules, right? As enough dirt, uh, it, the, this says two mules worth of dirt. Translate that into a pickup load of dirt. Okay, give or take a few pounds. It took some time to do that. They didn't have shovels like we have shovels now. He didn't have a backhoe to help him. All right. He didn't have a bunch of kids to order over there to do it. Well, he had a bunch of, he had some slaves that probably did it, but the shovels, you know, they didn't, make them like they do now. So it took some time to load up a truckload of dirt onto two mules and get them ready to go. And it's one of the things we tend to forget, okay? We forget that it just takes some time in order to prepare ourselves for our journey. I don't know about you, but when I'm popping popcorn, I really get tired of waiting for that last 15 seconds in the microwave. Yeah, it's only 15 seconds and I can't wait. So I open it up early and I'll live with a few more un unpopped kernels in the bottom of the bowl because I'm not willing to wait 15 seconds. I'm not willing to take that time to get all of my popcorn popped. Ever treat your prayer time that way? I can't do this. I don't have enough time for this. I've got to get it done. I've got to get it done. I've got to get it done. And you find yourself praying faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. 
just so you can get it all in, right? Right. That last four months for the seniors is torture. They just spent 11 and a half years in school. Four more months is more than they can take. Nobody wants to take the time. I mean, you just spent 11 and a half years. What's four more months, right? Take the time. We treat our Bible study like that. I just want to come to church and I want, I want the pastor to just tell me what I need to know. I want to take it home and I'm going to chew on that all week long and that's going to be my Bible learning. That's an awful heavy load to place on your pastor. It takes some time to build a personal rapport with God himself. Okay, we're not used to it. Before we come to the Lord, we're just used to going out and doing whatever we want, whenever we want to do it. And if we want to open up that microwave 15 seconds early, we just do it. But see, the thing is, God not only has all the time in the world, he can create time out of none. See, becoming a Jesus follower, it takes hardly any time at all, right? Romans 10, 9. Get this. If you're not a Jesus follower, get this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he raised him from the dead. He's not here anymore. You are saved. Boom, salvation, done. That's all it takes. That's all the time it takes to be saved. But following Jesus, the rest of your life is going to take the rest of your life. It's going to take some time, and we do not have to get in that much of a hurry to do it. You just, you don't have to. I mean, once we leave this world, we've got the rest of eternity to be with God himself and have all of our questions answered. In fact, we probably won't have any left to answer by the time we get there because it'll just smack us in the face and we'll go, oh, glory, God. Now it all makes sense. It's going to take some time to learn his ways, especially if you didn't grow up in it. And that so many people on the earth now didn't grow up in it. Any of our brothers and sisters who are coming to Jesus out of Islam, out of Iran, out of Syria, out of Iraq, you hear those, you hear those stories about people seeing Jesus. Yeah, they didn't grow up in a church like this. All they've ever known is that religion. And they're having to learn an entirely new way of life, a new way of life, a new way of thinking, a new way of feeling, something that's completely foreign to them, that God can love them and forgive them just because they ask him to. That's weird to them. We think it's normal. They don't, okay? 
sometimes we go around, we say, well, what is God's will for my life? And we're thinking jobs, for the most part. We're thinking, where do I live? What's the next house I move to? Who do I marry? How many kids should I have? But 1 Thessalonians 6, verses 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You hear the time ticking on that? How much time does it take to always rejoice, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in the middle of stuff that's really you don't feel thankable about? It could take the rest of my life. Probably will. It takes time to follow Jesus. So go ahead and take the time to do that. So first off, okay, here's the one, two, three. First off, like Naaman, now I know. That there is no God in all the earth except Jehovah. Second off, like Naaman, I will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifices to other gods, but to the Lord. One of Satan's favorite weapons is distractions. They're called children. They're called the deadline at work. They're called the expectations of everybody around you. Distractions, distractions. Everywhere we look is a distraction. Anything and everything to keep our focus away from God. And Satan loves those things. But you have to understand this. God is sovereign over Satan. He is sovereign over your distractions. So, what's going to rule your life? Is it going to be the distractions? Or is it going to be God? What's going to rule your life? Is it going to be all the things that you've got to do? Or is it going to be the God that you know and trust? You know what the world calls that trust and faith in God when things are not going well? They call it stupidity. I've already said it once. It's called stupidity to the world. But to those of us who know Jesus, it's called love. Sovereign God. Lord. You are God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for all these people here who came to hear you. Thank you for all your words pouring into our hearts and our minds. 
thank you, God, for your goodness to us. Help us to stay focused on you, that you would turn our hearts and our minds to you, Lord, every day, in everything, that you would be God of me. Amen. Amen. So if you guys, the music team would like to come up, the worship team would like to come up and maybe send us out with a song. We got any kids here who, who can do the baskets for us? The offering? <laughs> you can be a tall kid. You don't have to be a short one. Oh, they know. They know their job. They're good at it, aren't they? God is good. Lord, thank you for all the gifts that you've given us. Back to you. That which is already yours anyway. Thank you, God, for your goodness and your glory and help us to enjoy your life that you've given us. Amen. Where are we going to go out with? Do we know yet? Yes, we do. Awesome. I knew you would. Because <laughs> you guys are good that way. Oh